In our previous session on Joshua and Judges, we were examining the issue of this God of wrath in the Old Testament, especially with regards to his command for the people to take the land and utterly destroy, completely destroy, annihilate, take everything that has breath of life in it and destroy it, put it to death. And how, how we can understand this kind of God. Is this the angry God of the Old Testament versus the merciful God of the New Testament? And we backed up and looked at the bigger picture of the purposes as to why God does this. We looked at how God has been at work throughout history, giving us a clear sense that God is serious about sin, but also in his goodness, allowing us to see what it looks like when his wrath is poured out because his desire is to bring people into relationship so that he can pour out his blessing on them. As we continue our time in Joshua and Judges, I want us to now think about some of the theology of these books. And as the writer gives this particular story, the unfolding of events, the conquest of the land, the dividing of the land, this little introduction as to why Israel is going to be in struggle, the story of that struggle and the judges, and then finally these two examples of this tremendous depravity that was taking place during that time. As we move through these books of Joshua and Judges, there are certain theological points that I think the authors want us to see about these stories that they've put together. Remember, when you read this particular part of the Bible, it's not just about individual stories but rather these cycles or patterns or themes that seem to be occurring. So the stories are put together in a way to draw attention to a deeper theological point. The cycle in these particular books, I believe, drives home the point that the Lord must be obeyed. For apart from his blessing, life is futile. And so humanity is to get to a place to where they align themselves with God and his purposes in this world. And by doing so, God pours out his blessing and humanity experiences joy. Now, God in his goodness creates a beautiful world for humanity to live in and also communicates to them everything that they need to know so that they can live in that blessing. But the Lord must be obeyed. And so everything that he says must be taken to heart must be followed, and then the people of the nation of Israel will be able to enjoy the blessing that is theirs. Now, I want us to consider, first of all, the book of Joshua and then the book of Judges. When we get into the book of Joshua, if you could turn in your Bibles to that particular book, when we get into this particular book, we recognize that even though the book is called Joshua, it's not really about Joshua. And even though one of the major topics within the book is these military conquests. It's not really about military strategy or conquests and how they take the land, methods of warfare. What we find as we read through this book, it's very clearly about the Lord who brings about victory through people who faithfully follow his commandments, who faithfully obey everything that the Lord tells them to do. He lays out the instructions. Remember, it's the cloud that goes before them, the pillar of fire by night. This is about the Lord. He sends his angel before them, even though he's using human instrumentation, he's the one that brings about this particular destruction of the land. And the people must follow what he has for them to do. And so from the very beginning of the book, chapter one, 
When do the people go into the land? They go into the land when the Lord sends them to the land. They enter the land on his instruction, not before, not after, but on his instruction. And then we see in chapter two, verses nine through 11, verses that we need to keep in mind. Um, and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And again, we're reminded of the Lord going before them to terrify the people of the land. The Lord is the one who's leading the way on this. In chapters three and four, we see that they cross the Jordan. And again, we have a parting of the waters a body of water that Israel walks through on dry ground. It's the Lord who's leading them. They are following his instructions. In chapter five, we see that for some reason, throughout their wilderness wanderings, Israel has not been circumcised. This is the sign of God's covenant people, and they have not been obeying this throughout the wilderness wanderings. So God makes it clear, the sign of my covenant people, are people who are circumcised, you will be circumcised. Israel obeys, they comply, they follow the leading of the Lord. And then in chapter five, verses 12 through 15, uh, we see again, or especially in verse 15, the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. What is it that brings that particular verse about? Joshua sees this man and basically asking in verse 13, are you for us or for our adversaries? And the man responds, no, rather indeed, I come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua falls to his face. You see, it's again clear that it's the Lord who's leading the people into this land. He's the one that's gonna give the instructions and Israel is to obey. But even more so, we see this in a very clear pattern that is laid out for us. Again, the patterns, motifs, themes, the author is gonna recount for us stories, but he wants us to get the theological point. And when we look at what actually happens in this book, remember chapters one through 12, that's the conquest. Those are the battles that take place. Really, when you pull back and you think about it, there's only two battles that you get any kind of detail about at all. And that's the battle of Jericho and the battle of Ai. All the rest of the battles, it simply says, and the Israelites went here and they went there and they went here and there and there and they conquered. And it just gives a brief summary. But there are two battles that are clearly analyzed for us up front. Now, why is that? You, you have to ask those kind of questions when you read the text. All these battles, but two of them are laid out for us in complete detail. It's because the author wants us to see something very significant. And these two battles are laid by, side by side as well. 
They're, they're right next to each other so that we can learn what we need to learn. And so when we read about the battle of Jericho, we, see, we read about the slaughter, the total destruction. Israel does something strange because they're following the instructions of the Lord. They march around the city and blow trumpets and walls fall down. And then they go in and take the city. When the Lord wants them, they go in. It's all about the Lord's instructions. It's all about what he is doing that brings this about. And so they are clearly following the Lord's instruction. Now that's the first battle. The second battle is the battle of Ai. In the battle of Ai, what we see there is defeat. They are doing, they're just continuing to take the cities of the land. They're continuing to move forward, but now they experience defeat. And so we're left with the question, what in the world is going on at this point? Well, in chapter seven, in verses four through six, we get a little bit of an explanation about what happens here. Verse four, so about 3,000 men from the people went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them down on the descent. So the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Joshua tore his clothes fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. There's grieving at this point. What's gone wrong? One victory and now defeat, loss of life, friends and loved ones dead. When they've had all these promises, the Lord's gonna bring them into the land. What is the point ultimately that the author is wanting us to see? Jericho, Ai. Jericho, obedience brings blessing. Obedience will bring defeat of enemies. Ai, disobedience brings the curse. Disobedience will bring a defeat by one's enemies. This has been very cleared, clearly laid out for the nation of Israel. When you think of the blessings and the curses of living in covenant relationship with the Lord, Deuteronomy 28 and 29 ought to always come to mind. Obedience brings victory. Listen to what Deuteronomy 8, 28 verse seven says. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you in one way and they shall flee before you seven ways. This is what the Lord's saying. If you follow me, if you're obedient to me, when an enemy comes to you united, this is what's gonna happen. They're gonna flee in seven different directions. Utter chaos. They're just gonna run for their lives is what it's saying. Now notice later on in the chapter, talks about in verses 25 and 26, what happens when they are not following the Lord's instructions, when they are not being obedient to God's law, then the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them, but you shall flee seven ways. And you shall be an example of terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And your carcasses shall be food to all the birds of the sky and to the beasts of the earth. And there shall be no one to frighten them away. We have just the opposite. Israel will go before the enemy united and then there'll be utter chaos. What will happen is they'll flee in seven different directions. So we've got the blessing. Obedience brings blessing. It brings victory. And we've got the curse. 
Disobedience brings the curse. It brings defeat. And that's what they're experiencing at the battle of Jericho, blessing. The battle of Ai, defeat. And so the author sets these forward because he wants to make this strong point. The Lord must be followed. His word must be obeyed. That's the only way to life. Outside of that, it's all futility. If they decide to go their own way, then they're going to experience the curses of what it means to live in this world. God has clearly communicated this to them already. Moses, meeting with the second generation, he reminds them of the covenant. He reminds them of all the laws that the Lord gave them at Mount Sinai. And he reminds them, if you want blessing, you've got to obey. But if you're going to disobey, you're going to receive the curse. And again, I want to remind you, this is God's goodness that he gives the law. He wants people to know very clearly how they can know blessing. And if they choose that path, they will experience it. But if they don't, then they will experience the curse that comes from that. God is so good to communicate clearly. We don't have to run around and try to figure out what he wants. He's not a fickle God who hides himself and, and, and just keeps himself a mystery to us and we don't know what he wants from us and we live in fear. No, he clearly communicates to us. But Israel is not following the Lord in obedience like they should. And so because of this, we've got these two battles set up for us, clearly making the point, Israel, you must follow the Lord. If you don't, it's going to happen to you again what happened at the battle of Ai. So we don't have to know anything else about any of the other battles that take place because it's already clear. The author of the book of Joshua has made it so clear. It's the Lord who's leading the way. It's the Lord who's giving the instructions. The man that met Joshua, no, I'm the captain of the host of the Lord. I'm in charge here. The Lord is leading the way. And as long as Israel submits themselves to the Lord and obeys his word, they're going to experience victory. But when they don't, they're going to have all kinds of problems. And so these two battles are set up for their, the Lord must be obeyed. The rest of the book can be read in light of that. Now, when we get to the book of Judges, and I want us to turn over there a little bit, a few pages over to the book of Judges. As a follow-up to Joshua, Judges is going to give us a little bit of a contrast. And to me, that's a very important point for us to see. For instance, let me describe my feelings when I read the book of Joshua. Joshua's a, a book of victory. I mean, this promise given to Abram so many years ago, I'm gonna give you land. And then we've got the first generation that failed and did not obey the Lord and they died in the wilderness. Now the second generation comes along. Are they going to pass the test? The book of Joshua says, yes, they do. And you get to the end of the book and your arms are raised in triumph. This is exciting. This is finally happening. Maybe now we're gonna see once that once what we've been looking for all along is God's blessing poured out on his people. Maybe now it will happen. It's a very victorious book. We're in the land. What's next? You know, so they, they really begin to feel this themselves. And I think as a reader, we can feel that. When I get to the book of Judges, it's quite a different story. It's, it's not what I would expect. After getting done with the book of Joshua, I would expect the next book in the continuous story would be talking about 
milk and honey and the blessings of being in the land and, and how beautiful it was and how peaceful it was. And that's not what we have in the book of Judges. Instead, I find the book of Judges very depressing. Right from the start, the author gives the reasons for that. And then we move through each of the judges recounting the history of Israel and its failure, failure, failure. And then the last chapters, chapter 17 through 21, gives a, a, just an utterly despicable picture of what's going on in the land. It's awful. And you read the account of what sin looked like and how they were being so rebellious to the Lord and rebellious toward one another. You see the broken relationships and you just stand back and say, what? The covenant was to restore all of these relationships. The relationships human to human that were broken in the garden, human to divine that were broken in the garden. The law sought to bring back restoration, reconciliation between God and humanity and between person to person. And you get to the end of the book of Judges and you get an example of this relationship is a mess and these relationships are a mess. This is not what I would expect when I get to the book of Judges. This is what God's promise to Abram was all about? No, it's gotta be more than this. Judges is not an inviting sequel to the book of Joshua. So as we come into this book, we're gonna see two emphases that I really wanna set forward. And the first one is this. The point from Joshua is repeated for us again in the book of Judges. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings the curse. So we saw that in Joshua in the battle of Jericho and the battle of Ai. In the book of Judges, we're gonna see it everywhere. The second part of that, disobedience brings the curse. Disobedience brings the curse. Disobedience brings the curse. And so the land is gonna be in struggle throughout this particular time period. We see a cycle that takes place in the book. Look at chapter two, verses 11 through 19, where we can see this cycle. Chapter two, verse 11. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals, the gods of the land. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers. Notice, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. In his goodness, he did that. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed themselves down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtarot. And the angle of the Lord burned against Israel and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them so that they were severely distressed. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them and yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies. All the days of the judge for the Lord was moved 
to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And so we see this cycle that takes place. It looks like this, coming out of the days of Joshua, there was this obedience. The people were walking with the Lord. And then they would, as this text says, act wickedly and rebel against the Lord and walk away from him. And because of this disobedience, God would bring the curse. Their enemies would rise up against them. And what would God do? He would bring them into the hands of their enemy and their enemy nations would oppress them. And then, so we've got the falling away, We've got the God raising up an enemy nation to oppress them. And then in the midst of all of this, Israel would cry out for mercy, cry out for mercy to God. And God would raise up a judge to deliver them, one who would come to their aid. God would specially empower this judge to bring about a deliverance. And then after that, they would have this deliverance and they would walk with the Lord for a while until they acted wickedly. God brought an enemy nation to oppress them. They cried out to the Lord. The Lord raised up a judge who delivered them and they walked with the Lord for a while. This is the cycle that takes place throughout this book. We see it especially laid out for us in chapter two, verses 11 through 19. What the author is wanting us to do is see the pattern. And so right up front, he lets us see the pattern. And then we see this cycle in chapters three through 16 repeated over and over and over. The author wants to make it clear. The only way to know blessing, the only way to know blessing is to follow the word of the Lord, to yield to him. There must be obedience. Now that they're in the land, it, it doesn't get them off the hook to the Lord. The Lord is who he is and they're in relationship with him and they must heed that. They must follow the Lord with their whole heart and when they don't, there's gonna be consequences. And Judges shows us consequence after consequence after consequence. Disobedience will bring the curse. That's the first emphasis we see in the book of Judges. The second one is this. Even though Joshua is a book where it just feels victorious, they're, they're, they come to the land and they take the land, and they settle the land, yes, they're in the land, Judges shows that there was even a problem back then. And this makes an important theological point for us. Because when we get done reading the book of Joshua, you, you get this feeling, wow, Israel is finally living a life of obedience and they know the Lord's blessing. But when Judges looks back at this particular time period, Judges says, no, nah, it wasn't all as good as it seemed to be. There was a problem even back here, look at the first chapter and the second chapter of the book of Judges. What we see in the first chapter is that when you look back, even though it's a victorious book, the settling, the conquest of the land, there was problems because the people did not fully obey what the Lord had commanded them to do. They did not completely destroy the people of the land. That's the point of chapter one. The point of chapter two is they did not completely destroy Canaanite religion. And so the author of Judges is looking back and saying, this was not going so well 
there were actually a number of problems. And then when it gets, the, the author gets to chapter two, verses 11 through 19 and shows this cycle, this is why. They did not completely destroy the people. They did not completely destroy the gods. That's why this cycle is taking place. The gods and the people lead Israel away. And then God has to bring an enemy nation to oppress them. And then in their agony, they cry out to the Lord. He raises up a judge and he delivers them. And then they walk with the Lord for a while until they get led away. That's the problem. And we see actually played out before our very eyes the reason God wanted them to destroy the people of the land in the first place. The reason God wanted them to destroy the gods of the land. God was trying to prevent them from this tragedy. This is not fun. This is not a life of blessing. This is not a life of peace. It's not a life of rest and joy and contentment. It's a life of struggle and futility. And God in his goodness was seeking to prepare his people for what could happen and calling them to a life of obedience so they would not have to experience that. That's why God comes in and says, I want you to destroy all the people and destroy all their gods. But they did not. And so in chapter one, in verse 21, as an example, just looking back on a little bit of history, it says, then they gave Hebron to Caleb as Moses had promised and he drove out from there the three sons of Anak. Now look at verse 22 though. But, and these are really subtle messages in the text that it's hard to pick up in a reading because it feels so victorious when you're looking back in Judges. But here's Judge, the author of Judges is making it, or when you look back to Joshua, but here the author of Judges is making it clear. But, the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites. So they lived there to this day. We look down in verse 28. And it came about when Israel became strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. Verse 29, neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who were living in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived there. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants. Okay, we've got all of these problems that are taking place. 32, so the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out. And so Judges is looking back and saying, I know this is a victorious book. They're in the land and they're settled in the land, but we got problems back here. They did not completely destroy the people of the land. And in chapter two, it talks about they did not completely destroy the gods either. And so Judges wants us to see that there is a reason why the period of Judges is really a dark time. And what is that reason? The reason is the people did not fully obey the Lord did not fully obey the Lord. And when you do not fully obey the Lord, you are no longer under his blessing. God, because he loves the nation of Israel, is now going to bring judgment to them. He's gonna bring consequences to them. They're gonna experience the curses. Why? Because God is being good. He wants to turn their heart back to him. That's what happens in the book of Judges. In one sense, on one level, the book of Judges is a depressing book. Because this cycle happens over and over and we see Israel falling into sin, falling into sin, falling into sin. But on another level, it's exciting because you see the role of judgment. You see why God brought about curses to his people. Why he wanted to bring pain and difficulty in their life. Because it gets their attention. 
So rather than leave them in their sin, rather than leave them on this path to utter futility, God brings an enemy nation into their life to oppress them, to make it hurt. Why? So they come to the end of themselves, the same as what we see in the book of Genesis. So they experience vulnerability and they experience thirst and they long for more. They realize the world is broken and they can't fix it. And they turn to God and they cry out to him. And we see it working. God judges. He brings consequences. He disciplines so that his people will turn back to him. It's incredible to see that in the book. But these are some of the points I want to pull out of this first two chapters that lays this story down that although Joshua seemed like a victorious book, we've got some problems back there. And they did not destroy the people of the land and they did not destroy the religion of the people of the land. This is what I want us to see. God expects obedience of his people. And if they were not being completely obedient, they should have never occupied the land. If we understand clearly God's teaching, if they are not obedient, let's go to Jericho and Ai back in the book of Joshua. If they completely obey, they take the land. If they don't, they experience defeat. If they are experiencing defeat along the way, then they should not be able to take the land. If they are not being obedient, they should not be able to take the land. But God in his mercy, even though we can see in Judges that Israel was not being completely obedient, he still gave them the land. And I want us to see a merciful God in all of that. I want us to see this holy God who demands obedience of his people, who enters into a covenant relationship and says, this is the way you're going to live. I am God, you are not. Live in this way, be a holy people. And by the way, when you mess up, there's a way for you to reconcile with me. Here's the sacrificial system. You can have blood atonement. That brings us back into relationship. But you must follow me, you must heed what I say. And when they go into the land and they don't follow his instructions fully, God still gives them the land. That's so merciful of God. Now, they're gonna have consequences to that. God does not let them escape the consequences, but in his mercy, he continues to give them land. He is merciful. He is good. He works with people who continue to fail, who rebel against him. That's the first point I want us to pull out of um, these two chapters. The second one is, the one we've already been emphasizing through Joshua and Judges, and that is God must be followed. His word must be heeded. If we want to experience life, even for ourselves, we must be obedient to the word of God. We must be faithful followers of him. And this begins to set the stage for a point in the Old Testament that's extremely important, and that is this. The word of the Lord is what we need for life. The word of the Lord is what we need for life. What is it that is going to make Israel successful in the land? It's gonna be obedience to the word of the Lord. God has communicated to them. He wants them to enjoy blessing. He wants them to experience the goodness of this created world, but they must follow him. And so God's word becomes extremely important. But understand, we don't have this God in the sky who's leaving us to ourselves to figure all of this out on our own. God is clearly communicating to us 
everything he wants us to know. And we've got that found in this book right here. Everything that God wants us to know, he has clearly communicated to us in language, in word, so that we can read, so that we can read over and over, so that we can be reminded he wants us to know life and he's given us his word and his word is absolutely essential to who we are, being in a covenant relationship with him. And in light of that, I want us to consider Psalm 1 and I want us to turn in our Bibles there. Again, the theology of this, these particular books moves us to consider the importance of the word of God. Psalm 1, Psalm 119 would be a powerful psalm to go through at this point. But I, I wanna focus on something in Psalm 1 because I think it makes the point that I really believe that Joshua and Judges wants us to see about how obedience brings blessing and the word of God is central to that. Psalm 1, verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. That's the blessed man. Now we go to the wicked man. The wicked are not so, but they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows or approves or has regard to the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. In this simple psalm, we have a contrast of two persons the blessed one and the wicked one. The blessed one who walks in the ways of the Lord and then the wicked one. But I want us to see the, the structure of this psalm brings home a powerful point for our lives that helps us to see even more clearly the theology of Joshua in Judges. The structure of the psalm, the first three verses are about the blessed man. And then verses four and five are about the wicked man. And so we see this little contrast here. The blessed man is, blessed is the man who, and it gives a very clear description of this man. Verse four, it simply says, the wicked are not so. That's all we get for a description about them. They're not like the blessed man. And then in verse three, for the blessed man, we get a comparison what is the best blessed man like? He's like a tree, firmly planted, or even the idea here is transplanted, that it's been uprooted and transplanted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. There's a prosperity to this man. This is, this is a living being, functioning, bearing fruit in the way it's supposed to. That's what the blessed man is like. Now, there's also a comparison for the wicked man in the latter part of verse four. But, the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. So blessed man, this is who he is, a description of him. 
cursed man, only description, not like the blessed man. And then we've get this, we get this comparison, like a tree and all the beauty of it. And then like chaff, the wind just blows it away. Nothing is what it is. But this is what the psalmist really wants us to see. In verse two, there's a focus on the word. So you've got a description of the blessed man and you've got a comparison like a tree, but he's, uh, he's, we've also got this focus on the word. For the wicked man, you've got a description, not so, not like the wicked, not like the blessed man. And then you've got a comparison. He's like chaff. What's missing? There's no word. There's no word. And that's what the psalmist wants us to see. The structure would just throw your eyes to this. What is it that makes someone blessed? It's because of verse two. His delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law, he meditates day and night. For the blessed man, we see the centrality of the word. He delights in it. He meditates on it. It's in his thoughts. He puts his mind on the word. The word is placed on his mind. It affects the way he lives. It influences his decisions. All of his life is directed by the impact of God's living word. He meditates on it day and night. It's constantly there. The idea of the word meditate is this growling, this muttering under your breath. Talking to yourself is the idea there. And the blessed man is one who delights and meditates talking, talking to himself. What's missing for the wicked man is there is no word. There is no word. The difference is the law. And when we step back and look at the big picture of the Old Testament, again, we see when God gives the law, it's not oppressive. It's not burdensome. It's not this weight hanging on top of people. It, in fact, Psalm 1, is the difference between one being blessed and one being wicked because God shows the path to life. So Joshua and Judges wants us to see so clearly where does blessing come from? From following the instructions of the Lord. Where does problems and curse and futility and turmoil and difficulty come from? From walking away from the Lord. What is the difference between a blessed man and a wicked man? It's the word that can be hidden in the heart. We could go to so many Psalms and, and the, whole idea, the whole idea of the book of Psalms is to remind us of all the beautiful promises that the word of God brings. But in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect. It restores the soul. The testimony of the Lord is certain. It makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord, they're right. And the heart rejoices. The commandment of the Lord, pure. And it enlightens the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. The judgments of the Lord are true righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And even more, by then, by them, your servant is warned. And in keeping them, there is great, great reward. What is that great reward? To be a blessed man. What is that great reward? It's to avoid being the wicked man and living under the curses of, the God, of curses of God. God, in his goodness, 
has blessed humanity with the way to life so that we can know him and follow him and be under his blessing. We can't call the the way we're to live in this world on our own. We must submit to the eternal sovereign God because he's the one who's deserving of all glory, honor, and praise, all the focus of our being, everything in our heart being directed toward him. He is worthy of all of that. We don't make this up on our own. We don't find our way our own. We give ourselves to him. That's what makes a man blessed and be able to live underneath the blessing of God. Let me read a few more verses about this. We can go to Psalm 119 too. The word is a lamp unto our feet. That's what keeps us from sin all those precious promises of the word. But listen to Deuteronomy 32. Moses is talking to the second generation before they take the land. The law has been given again. The first generation failed in being obedient to the law and they met their death, the curses of the covenant. And he's calling the second generation to be obedient so they can experience the blessings of the covenant. And so in going through all of this, listen to what he says. In verse 45, when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, take to your heart, take to your heart, place them on your heart, all the words which I'm warning you today, which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, pass this on, even all the words of this law. Why? Because the law is good. Look at verse 47. For it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. Moses says, hey, these are not empty words. All of the words of the law, it is your life. Put it to your heart, pass it on to your children. Why? So they can be a blessed man, so they can experience God's blessings and be like a tree planted by rivers of water, yielding fruit and leaf in its season, rather than like a cursed man, like chaff which the wind drives away, futile, empty, meaningless. It's the word that's central to all of this. It is your life. Deuteronomy 6, verse four, listen up, Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I'm commanding you today shall be where? On your heart, and you shall do what? Teach them diligently to your sons. Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you rise up, when you lie down. This is to consume your life. It's to be constantly a part of who you are. Chapter 11 drives home this same point. In verse 18, you shall therefore impress these words. Put them, mash them, imprint them on your heart and on your soul and Bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. Teach them to your sons. So that, verse 21, your days and the days of your son may be multiplied on the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens remain above the earth. You can be a blessed man. In chapter five, Deuteronomy, in verse 29, it goes on and says, oh, that they had such a heart in them that would fear me and keep all my commandments always that it may be well with them and their sons forever. That's the cry of God's heart. Oh, that they would have a heart in them, such a heart. Where's that heart gonna come from? It's gonna be by impressing the words of the law right there. 
It's gonna be by inclining their hearts to the word. It's gonna be one who delights in the law. Lord, tell me more. What is it that you want me to know? Because I wanna know you and I wanna be in your blessing. Delighting in it, meditating on it throughout all the activities of the day, decisions that are made, things about the future, things about the present, how to deal with people, how to responsibly steward our life, things that we do with our time, things that we do with our money, all things in life. Meditating, thinking about, because we delight in these things. So Israel had to learn a lesson, oftentimes a very hard way. But the point that Joshua and Judges wants us to see is this. It's just not gonna work if you decide to go your own way. It's not gonna work for the nation of Israel if they do not follow clearly, uncompromisingly the words of the Lord. The law has been given to them for life. They're not idle words, it's life. It's life indeed. It's the difference between a blessed man and a cursed man, a wicked man. It's meditating on this law. That's the point that God wants to drive home. But also, even beyond that, God continues to move forward his plan despite Israel's disobedience. We step back, we look at the big picture and, and we see the fact that they were not fully following the words of the Lord. They were not fully obeying the commands that God had given to them. But that does not stop God's forward progress. This is not about Israel. It's not about them getting their act together. It's not about them finally grasping everything that God wants them to. It's much bigger than that. It's about an eternal God, a sovereign God, who's working out his plans in this world to accomplish his purposes, and nothing is going to stop it. Nothing is going to stop it. Now, as we begin to move in to the next few books, we're gonna get into Samuel and Kings, and we're gonna move out of this period of the conquest and the early history of being in the land, and we're gonna begin moving into the kingdom. We're gonna see this repeatedly. God's word must be followed, and also God will not be stopped. He will not be thwarted. He will accomplish his purposes, and he's gonna continue to move forward this plan. This is his eternal plan. From the time of his creation in the Garden of Eden and all his workings with all of his um, people along the way, Abram, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, the nation of Israel, God is not gonna be stopped. He's gonna move it forward. And so we wanna take now the movement through the storyline into the books of Samuel and Kings and see what it is that God wants us to learn from these books.